Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Can you understand me? Okay. So far, so good. <laughs> well, it really is my uh, privilege to be here this morning and my pleasure to open God's Word with you. So can I invite you to ch- turn to Matthew chapter 10. Uh, as, as Nick said, we uh, are recently in the U.S. from the U.K., and our experience over the last 20 years has been uh, we planted a church uh, in Bristol, which is in the southwest part of England, and as Nick said, I planted that church and pastored there for about 20 years, and then the Lord has led us here. Uh, we don't know what the future holds, but we're excited to be in partnership with Covenant Fellowship and with churches like Valley Creek, and so it really thrills my heart to be here. Uh, this is a much more familiar setting for me than Covenant Fellowship, you know, where you can see people's faces, so it's great to be among you, and it's, uh, it's a privilege to get to know Nick and Happy a little bit and their family, and, uh, and um, to just make new friends, and so it's a privilege to be here this morning and be able to do that as well. All right, Matthew chapter 10, let me just start my clock here. I hope you have it in front of you. This is God's Word. But before I read it, I want to start with uh, a story. Operation Overlord was the code name for the Battle of Normandy, which was the the Allied Forces operation uh, that was launched uh, against Germany, Nazi-occupied Europe during World War II. And the, the operation was launched on June the 6th, 1944, which later became known as D-Day. The Normandy landings involved over 1,200 planes, uh, more than 5,000 vessels and boats, and uh, over 160,000 troops. Uh, And General Dwight Eisenhower, as he was at the time, later to become the 34th president of the U.S., was the commander of these forces. And on the eve of D-Day, he issued what was called the Order of the Day, which was basically a speech that he delivered to the troops to impress upon them the importance of the mission that was before them. And so the night before they went into battle, he said these words. Hopefully they'll come up on the screen because it's quite long. You can follow along. Here's his speech. He said, Soldiers and sailors and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade, towards which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and the prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi uh, tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world." Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle man-to-man, And our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. 
The tide has turned, he said. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And let us beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. And as you can imagine, all of those troops went into Nazi-occupied France. And by, I think, the end of August, there were over two million troops in mainland Europe. And they conquered the Nazis and brought about an end to World War II. Now, in our passage before us this morning from Matthew 11, Jesus is a little bit like a military commander who is calling his soldiers, his disciples together, and issuing them an order of the day. He's giving them commands to impress upon them the importance of the mission that lies ahead. Now, as Nick said, you've been in this series, so if you remember in chapter 10, verses 1 to 15, Jesus begins by describing the first stage of the mission, which is the 12 being sent out into the towns of Israel to proclaim the kingdom. But in our passage that we're just about to read, Jesus kind of turns his eyes forward to the future to think about uh, a time uh, where the mission horizon will expand beyond Israel to the rest of the world. And so that's what's in view here. Now, of course, these words have immediate application to the, to the original audience, the 12, and particularly to that kind of post-resurrection period where Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, and they went out into Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But it also has application for all Christians who are engaged in the mission of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that includes all of us here this morning spreading the gospel to Malvern and to Pennsylvania. So these words are for us. Let's read God's word together. Chapter 10, verses 16 to 25. Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And if they have called the master of the house of Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Will you just join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit. And we thank you that when we come to your word, your spirit helps us 
to understand and to apply the truth to our lives. So we ask for both understanding and application that your spirit would work this morning to bring your word deep into our hearts and change us forever for our good and your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, today, as we walk through this passage, we will see one very clear idea come out, I think, and that's this, that as we go on the gospel mission that Jesus calls us to, we should be ready for persecution and we should be ready for God's presence and power to help us. So we should be ready for God's uh, for persecution, but we should also be ready for God's power and presence to help us. And we're going to explore this order of the day that Jesus gives to his followers under three points or three headings this morning. We're going to explore it under uh, a warning about persecution, then our response to persecution, and our hope in persecution. So three things there: our, a warning of persecution our response to persecution, and our hope in persecution. So let's begin with that first point, a warning of persecution. In verse 16, Jesus tells his followers that he is sending us out as sheep in the middle of wolves. Now, you don't have to have seen a nature TV documentary to know that that doesn't sound like very good news. All right? Wolves are apex Predators. They are top of the food chain. They are lethal hunters. They are capable of taking down large prey. They can take down deer and elk and moose. It's even been recorded that they have uh, taken down bear as well. So they are pretty awesome animals. Sheep, on the other hand, <laughs> right, are some of the most helpless and vulnerable and foolish animals in the entire animal kingdom. They have no capacity for self-defense. They have no weapons. They have no fighting skills. All they can do is bah and run, and they don't do that very fast. I don't know if you've ever seen the, um, the kind of the viral video clip of uh, a farmer trying to rescue a sheep out of a, out of a crevice in the rock, and he pulls this sheep out, because the sheep is totally useless, and he grabs him by the legs, and he pulls him out, and the sheep runs in a circle and attempts to jump the crack again and ends up back in the crack, because and sheep are so stupid, all right? And I grew up in Wales, where there are more sheep than people, so I have a good understanding. So you get this idea. Sheep in the middle of wolves... That spells danger. There's a warning there that there is an inevitable and constant threat for the Christian on mission. And Jesus tells us that persecution is going to come in several different forms and from several different sources. So in verse 17, he warns us that persecution is going to come from religious authorities. We know that because he mentions the courts and the synagogues. But then in verse 18, he tells us that not only will persecution come from religious authorities, but it will come from secular authorities as well. He tells us that we're going to be dragged before kings and governors and Gentiles. And you get this idea that it's not necessarily mob threats that rise up against the Christians, although that's certainly possible, but it's mostly organized uh, persecution. And it's quite severe. In fact, to mention kings and, and governors, that kind of means that the, author, the, uh, the persecution that comes from these authorities is of the highest 
kind of order. It's the strongest opposition and persecution that one could face. It's backed with strength and power. And then Jesus tells us in verse 21 that persecution will also come, not just from those who are on high with great power, but also from those that we least expect, from those that are closest to us, from family, maybe from friends, brother turning on brother, father turning on child, children turning on their parents. That this idea that where there should be loyalty and love, there's going to be treachery and betrayal. And then Jesus kind of sums it all up in verse 22, and he says, you will be hated by all. Now, that doesn't mean every single person in the entire world that you will meet hates you because you are a Christian. Perhaps your neighbor who lives next door to you actually quite likes you. I hope they do. But it means every kind of person without distinction, that there will be people in this world who will always find a reason to hate Christians. And that reason is because we bear the name of Christ. And so if you're kind of tracking with Jesus, right from the beginning of Matthew 10, he tells us that in that first bit that Nick preached on a few weeks ago, that persecution, actually it starts out often as not being very warmly welcomed, but it quickly descends into trouble on the grand scale. Opposition, arrest, beatings, physical violence, hatred, death even. And so Jesus issues a warning of persecution, that wherever the gospel goes, persecution will surely follow after it. And it will be widespread and it will be strong. Now, what's the reason for this persecution? Well, again, verse 22, if you look with me, Jesus says, you will be hated by all, by all kinds of people, for my name's sake. So we're not hated because of who we are, but we're hated because of whose we are. We're hated because we align ourselves with Jesus. We represent him and we belong to him and people don't like it. We get a window of this in uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 3 where John writes that the light, talking about Jesus, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things, John tells us, they hate the light and they don't come to the light because they're fearful that their works will be exposed. You see, we follow a king in Jesus who challenges the values and the prevailing cultures of every age. He challenged the self-righteous, legalistic Jewish religious leaders of Israel in the first century. But he also offended the pagans and the polytheists of Greece and Rome. And that same Jesus offends modern sensibilities today. He stands in stark contrast to the idols of our age, the health, wealth, security, pleasure and sex, power and accomplishment, individualism and identity, career, reputation. He offends, even today. And Jesus wants us to be aware that as we carry his name into this hostile world, as we share the saving message of his grace towards Sinners, the antagonism and the hatred that was directed at him gets shifted over to those who represent him. 
like you and me. I think this is what he means in verses 24 and 25 where he says that a disciple is not above his master. What that means is that we as followers of Jesus should not expect better treatment than our master received. If they can persecute Jesus, oh, how much more easily will they persecute us? If they can call Jesus Beelzebub, the, sort of the name given to Satan, well, they'll certainly find ways in which to treat us as evil people. So we should be ready for persecution as we seek to advance the message of the gospel, the gospel in a hostile world. If you notice in verse 23, right at the beginning, it says, when they persecute you, not if. And Acts is a book full of the words of Jesus here coming to fruition. You just, if you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, or, or even back in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 16, 17, 18, 21, 24, 27, 28. They're all stories, whether it be the disciples, whether it be uh, other followers of Jesus, whether it be Peter singled out, whether it be Paul and his traveling companions, page after page after page, we find the warnings of Jesus that persecution will come, coming true, coming to fruition. And it's still happening in our day, sadly. There's an organization that you can go on their website called Open Doors. And they are a Christian organization, a charity, I think, that is basically tracking and reporting persecution that happens in our world today. And it encourages us to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. But this week I looked up some statistics. Worldwide, 360 million Christians face very high or extreme persecution across the globe right now. That means that one in seven Christians right now are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. More, than, more people than the entire population of the U.S. right now are being persecuted because they follow Jesus. Just last year in 2022, nearly 6,000 Christians were killed for their faith worldwide. Another 5,000 were imprisoned for their faith. Another 5,000 were kidnapped for their faith. Over 2,000 churches were attacked or closed because of persecution. 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes and are now refugees somewhere. Persecution still happens today. And we need to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me just encourage you. I hope this is all right with you, Nick. Go onto the Open Doors website. Find out the places where people are being persecuted and just begin to pray for those people, for brothers and sisters that we will never meet, that Jesus will sustain them in the midst of hatred and discrimination and violence, that he will protect them from harm, that he'll help them to, continuous, uh, to be continuously steadfast in their faith. Pray for the persecutors that Christ would break in on their hearts. And pray that the word of God would continue to go forward and flourish, as we see in the book of Acts, when persecution occurs. But we should also be ready as Christians that, that we, living in the U.S. in the 21st century, we may not be being fed to lions right now, but persecution will come. It is already here. 
We live in an increasingly hostile world. The government, lawmakers, the education system, businesses, the LGBTQ agenda, all threaten Christians. We will face intolerance and mocking and being marginalized and maligned, slandered, discriminated against. We may even suffer one day imprisonment and physical violence for our faith in Jesus Christ and our refusal to compromise on his truth. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we've got to be ready. We've got to heed the warning of Jesus here. The proclamation of the gospel and persecution for the sake of the gospel are inseparable. So how do we respond? Well, that's our second point this morning. We respond. How do we respond to persecution? Well, Jesus not only warns us gravely and soberly and solemnly of the persecution to come, but he also provides help to navigate and to respond rightly to persecution and opposition when, it, when we're face-to-face with it. And he has a, a few different ways that are woven throughout the passage. So if you look with me, verse 17, he first of all calls us to be aware, to beware He wants us to be on guard, to be on the lookout, to be ready, to be prepared. That we shouldn't be Christians who are naive. That we think somehow that, you know, the Christian life is just cupcakes and rainbows forever. No, we don't want to bury our heads in the sand. We shouldn't think that persecution is someone else's problem and that it won't touch us. Nor should we be uh, surprised when it arrives on our doorstep. Peter tells uh, his hearers in, in 1 Peter that we should not be surprised when trials come upon us. So Jesus here is, is telling us to be aware, but he wants us to be aware so that we can respond rightly. He wants us to be shrewd. If you look at verse 16, he tells us he's sending us out as sheep, as sheep but he doesn't want us to act like sheep. He wants us to act like two other animals. He wants us to act like snakes and doves. Now, I come from the UK. I have no experience of snakes, but one of the things that my kids were most uh, fearful about when we came to the US is they have snakes there that can kill you. And I don't know whether that's true in this area. I haven't seen one since I've been here, but I hear that you have snakes that can kill you. Is that right? All right. Thank you. Thank you for that affirmation. Now, when Jesus says, be wise as a serpent, he doesn't mean be sneaky hide under a pile of leaves, and when the opposition comes past, strike them. All right? He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean use the cunning of a snake to bite and devour and kind of repay evil for evil. That's not what he's talking about here. When he calls us to be wise as serpents, he wants us to be shrewd like a snake. You know, snakes who slither around and they go out into the world without any hesitation, without any fear. They go with boldness because they can kind of read the situation around them. They can taste the air. They can move and adapt quickly to what's going on around them. I think that's the kind of way that Jesus is calling us to be like a snake, that we could use our heads and the intellect and the craft and the guile and the sensibilities that he has given us to read the room and to be prudent and to avoid unnecessary danger. But we're also to be innocent as doves. That, the dove is a, is a kind of a symbol of peace and purity and gentleness. So I think Jesus is calling us as Christians to be wiser serpents, to read the room, but then also to be 
pure and gentle and faithful and act with integrity, not to be people who are rude or abrasive or inconsiderate or or argumentative or belligerent as we share the gospel. It's this, uh, like, as we respond to persecution, he wants us to respond in a way that's kind of, uh, there's a balanced godly prudency and purity by which we are able to navigate our way through this world. You know, Jesus' message, the message of the gospel, to call people out for their sins offends people. The claims that Jesus makes, that he is the only way, the, the way, the truth, and the life, that offends people. To hear that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness offends people. To hear that you are under the judgment of God offends people. The truth of Jesus does offend people, but what Jesus here is calling us to in verse 16 is to not be messengers that are jerks that offend people. The message offends, but the messenger should not. We've got to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. We're to speak and act and live in a way that if persecution comes to our door, it's not because we deserved it. It's not because we earned it. It's because we held out Christ. So we're to be shrewd. We're, verse 19, we're to not be anxious. If you've been tracking through Matthew, you'll remember Matthew chapter 6. Jesus uh, calls his disciples, doesn't he, to not be anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear because your heavenly Father knows that you need these things and he will take care of you. He'll provide for you. Well, in the same way right here in verse 19 when he says, do not be anxious, he, he wants us to realize that our heavenly Father, he sees what we need, he knows what we need and he will provide for us. We'll touch on that in a in a little bit more and under our third point. But we're to not be anxious. We're also to be ready to endure. This is verse 22 where Jesus says, be, uh, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we're to endure. We're not to fight back or to actively resist, if you like, be a, a, a rebellion. But we're to patiently endure. We're to continue with steadfastness. We're to stand firm no matter what is thrown at us so that we're not blown off course, so that we're not hindered. We're to endure. And we're to also flee. You see that in verse 23? This may be the most surprising one. As I was reading through the passage, Jesus says here, one of the responses to persecution is to flee. He recognizes that, yes, we're called to be brave and we're called to endure sometimes, but sometimes we're to flee as well. Now, that's not driven by cowardice or fear. That's driven by that kind of shrewdness and prudence of being wise as a serpent. Now, let's be clear. This does not mean that Jesus is telling you to give up on reaching out to difficult people in your life. This does not mean that Jesus is calling you to give up on your friends and family who have yet to respond to the gospel and it's maybe the 20th or the 30th year you've been sharing with them. No, no, no. we're to continue to be faithful in those situations and circumstances, to continue to reach out. But if we're in a circumstance or a situation where we're being persecuted and the gospel is not getting a hearing and we're being 
persecuted because of that, Jesus says, well, maybe the time is to flee that. Remember his words in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, the mission is urgent, the time is short, the workers are few. If you're flogging a dead horse, move on. Move on. Maybe it's time to go. Yes, we must speak out for Christ. We must speak out for Christ. We must stand up for the truth no matter what the cost. And maybe at some point in the future, in God's good providence, that might mean that we would be imprisoned or suffer violence or maybe even die for our faith in Jesus. But sometimes, faithfulness to the mission looks like withdrawing today so that I can preach tomorrow. One commentator says this, Daniel Duraney, when persecuted, we should change our geography, but we never change our theology. I thought that was just helpful. Yeah, sometimes we might have to go somewhere else. Sometimes we might have to move, reach out somewhere else, but we never change our theology. This is what happened, isn't it, in Acts chapter 7 and 8. Do you remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who was one of the the, the deacons of the early church that we read about in Acts chapter 6, he was arrested and he was hauled before the Jewish religious leaders. So verse 17 of our text coming true, they're going to call you in between courts and, and synagogues. And he was stood before the high priest and he was asked to give an account for his faith. And he gives the most incredible rundown of God's working in the history of Israel. How God had been at work through Abraham and Moses and David, and all of these Old Testament patriarchs and saints. And in the end, what happens? He gets stoned. He's bold, and he gets martyred. But then at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, as, Paul, as Saul, sorry, not Paul at the time, but as Saul is kind of watching over Stephen's execution, a great persecution, we're told, arises against the church. And what happens? They flee. They scatter. They go out of Jerusalem, they go into Judea, they go to Samaria, they go to the ends of the earth and they begin to preach the gospel. And verse 4 says they, they preached the gospel, they shared the seed of the gospel wherever they went, wherever they were scattered, they scattered the word, they scattered the gospel and people responded and they were saved and churches were built. See, sometimes persecution calls Jesus' followers to go and to flee and to scatter but as we do, it's actually that persecution that drives the mission forward. So how do we respond to persecution? Well, we be aware, we be shrewd, we be, anxious, we be not anxious, we be ready to endure, and we be ready to flee. But he doesn't just tell us how to respond. He also gives us hope in the midst of persecution. Jesus calls his followers to a costly mission, but he also gives us hope hope in the midst of it. This is our third point, our hope in persecution. If you're like me, when you first read the passage, you just think, oh my, this is doom and gloom. We're going to be betrayed, we're going to be hated, we're going to be hurt, we're going to be killed. Praise the Lord, everybody. Should we go for coffee? It sounds, it's hard. Those things are hard. But don't miss the hope that Jesus gives us in these verses. Remember verse 16, who is speaking to us? Who's giving us this command? Who's sending us out as sheep amongst the wolves? Jesus says, I am. 
I'm sending you. And in fact, in the original language, that I is kind of emphatic. It means I am sending you out. I've surveyed the landscape. I can see the wolves. I know your sheep. But I'm sending you because I'm in control. Because I know all things. Because I'm in charge. The wolves aren't in charge. You sheep certainly aren't in charge. I am. Jesus is the one who commands us to go. Jesus is the one who calls us into his mission. Jesus is the one who has designed all of this. He knows all things. He sees all the dangers. And yet he still sends us out. That means that any persecution that you and I experience is not an unforeseen tragedy that just strikes us as unlucky. It means that in his good providence, it's part of his plan for our lives. And so rather than be discouraged or fearful at the prospect of persecution, we should be encouraged. Jesus sees, Jesus knows what we will face. He predicts it because he's in charge of it. He's in sovereign control of the wolves and the sheep. No plan can, of his can be thwarted. No enemy of his can overthrow him. No purpose of his can be undone. We can trust him completely. Do you, do you remember what the scriptures call him? The good shepherd. The good shepherd. He loves, he watches over, he cares for, he provides and he protects his sheep even in the face of wolves. That's why we can go with hope. But he doesn't just leave it there in verse 19. He doesn't just send us out and command us not to be anxious. He tells us we're to go out and we're to not be anxious. Why? Because he's going to go with us. Look with me at verse 19 again. When they deliver you over... Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father, the Holy Spirit, who is speaking through you. In the midst of persecution and danger, Jesus tells us we're not alone. He promises us his presence. He promises us his power through the Holy Spirit to help us in the midst of persecution. We can be hopeful because he not only sends us out, but he will go with us. And then finally, there's hope in verse 22, where he says, You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we go out with hope because Jesus sends us. We go out with hope because, um, <coughs> excuse me, because Jesus goes with us through the Spirit. And we have hope in the midst of persecution because one day we will be saved. That means that persecution is temporary. The persecution does not have the final word that one day it will come to an end. Either the persecutors will come to an end or they'll just get bored or they'll be tired or we will die. Either in the fullness of time or by martyrdom. Or Jesus will return in glory and consummate all things and end it. 
So we endure and we remain faithful because of the hope of salvation. Now, not, not physical salvation necessarily from violence and death, but there is a day coming very soon when we will be with the Lord fully in his presence. The victorious, risen, glorious Jesus who by his life and death and resurrection has overcome every single enemy that we face. He's overcome sin. He's overcome Satan. He's even overcome death. And we will be with him and safe forever. That's why we can have hope in the midst of persecution. He sends us out. He goes with us. And he will save us to the utmost. And these, these are the words of Peter we'll finish here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance. This is what we are being saved to, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, that is being kept in heaven for you So we have an inheritance, a salvation, a deliverance that is being kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus sends us out. Jesus goes with us. Jesus is coming again to take us to be with him. So in the midst of persecution, let us be ready. Let us be prepared to respond rightly, but let us be encouraged. Amen, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And although it has hard warnings for us, help it to make soft hearts within us so that we might be ready to respond to the opposition and persecution that we might face in a way that glorifies Jesus. And may we have hope that you are with us and that you are coming again to establish your good and perfect kingdom, to conquer every opponent, to vanquish every enemy, and to rule and reign in perfect justice and righteousness and love forever without end. May we trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.